like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. In the first half of chapter 1, Paul lists our riches in Christ, and then in the last half of that chapter, he prays that we might realize what we've got. He prays that the eyes of our hearts might be opened so that we will know how rich we are in Jesus Christ. And one of the things he specifically wants us to understand is mentioned in verse 19, and that is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Now, to help us understand that, he illustrates it in a couple of ways. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 1, he tells us it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in the passage we want to look at this morning, he tells us that it is the power that raised us from the dead. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead physically. It is the power that raised us from the dead spiritually. You say, well, how difficult was that? How much power did it take to raise us? Well, Paul shows us the degree of difficulty in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2 where he describes the human condition. And he says three things about our condition apart from Christ. He says that we were dead, we were dominated, and we were doomed. First of all, he says we were dead. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, some of your translations say, and you hath he made alive. If your Bible says that, it should be in italics, which indicates that it's not really there in the original language. You say, well, why did they put it there? Well, they put it there because Paul has a rather unusual sentence here. In fact, he doesn't get to his main verb until verse 5. And the main verb is, he has made you Alive, And so some translators try to help him out with the smoothness of the sentence by moving that phrase to the beginning. And I think they also move it because they don't like the suspense. You see, Paul had a purpose in his poor grammar. Because as we read verses 1 to 3, we find that they are very dark verses. They're all about sin. And then beginning in verse 4 we start seeing some light. And he has a purpose in that. He wants to paint a a dark background against which he will then show us the colors of God's grace. You ever go look for a gold necklace for your wife? They bring you in there and they bring out a little dark material and they lay it there and they lay the necklaces on that dark material because it looks better against that background. That's what Paul is doing for us here. He paints a dark background in verses 1 to 3 and then comes flooding in the light of God's grace and the beauty of salvation. And he begins to paint that dark background with these words, you were dead. Now sometimes we hear news accounts of a wife killing her children or of a husband killing his wife or of a child being kidnapped and sold or of a senseless drive-by shooting and our response is oftentimes, you know, people are sick. But you know, that's not really an accurate assessment because God doesn't say here that people are sick. God says that people are dead. And he's not just talking about some particularly decadent group of people. 
He's not just talking about some corrupt segment of society. He is talking about everyone. Notice verse 1. It says, you were. And then verse 3 says, among them we too all formerly lived. And then the last phrase in verse 3 says, even as the rest of mankind. Everyone falls into this category. And the only glimmer of light that I can find in the first three verses is that these statements are made in the past tense. You were, and you formerly walked. If you are a Christian, this is a description of your past. If you are not a Christian, this is a description of your present. Now, obviously, he's not talking here about physical death. He's talking here about spiritual death. Everyone in this world either is or was spiritually dead. Now, what is spiritual death? Well, the simplest way to describe that is it is the absence of spiritual life. And what is spiritual life? Well, how did Jesus describe it in John chapter 17 and verse 3? Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God. Life is knowing God. So death is not knowing God. Death is separation from God. And that's why later in Ephesians 4.18, describing unbelievers, Paul says, they are alienated from the life of God. They are separated. That's why the father of the prodigal son, when his son returned, said, this son of mine was dead and has now come back to life. He was dead because he was separated from his father. You say, well, people don't look dead. I mean, there are people apart from Christ, who look very much alive. You look at an athlete with a vigorous body, you look at a scholar with a lively mind, you look at a film star with a vivacious personality. You say, are you saying that those people apart from Christ are dead? Yes. Because you see, in the sphere that is most important, which is not the body or the mind or the personality, in the sphere that is most important, which is the soul, they are dead. And you can tell it. Because they are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. There is no love for God. There is no leaping of their spirit saying, Abba, Father. There is no love for being around His people. They are dead. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. They're like the widow described in 1 Timothy 5, 6, where it says, she is dead even while she lives. She's living this life, but she is dead spiritually because there's no relationship with God. And we need to learn to look at things from God's perspective. When's the last time you went to a funeral? I go to funerals often, and I go into the funeral home, and I stand, and I look at a corpse. And one of the most common things that people say to me at that moment is this. They'll come up close to me, and they'll say, doesn't he look good? And I want to be honest. And I want to say, yeah, but he's dead. You know, some people... 
do look good dead. In fact, I've known some people that look better dead than they did when they were alive. They dress you up, you know, they put your best clothes on and, and work on you for a long time, and there you are, you know, you're looking good. If a person is physically fit and witty and bright, we might look at that person and say, doesn't he look good? And God says, yeah, but he's dead. You see, in what really matters, the soul, there's no life there. Now, what can you say about a dead person? Two things stand out in my mind. Number one, he's helpless. And number two, he's hopeless. A dead person is helpless. Did you ever try to pick up a dead person? You don't say, listen, if you could just kind of lean toward me and hang on, it'd be a lot nicer. But he can't do that because he's dead. He can't even lift a finger to help. That's why at his funeral he has to have pallbearers because he is dead weight. He is helpless. And spiritually... We were dead. We were helpless. We could not lift a finger to help ourselves. And the second thing that's obvious about a dead person is that they're hopeless. When the doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, he's dead. We don't say, well, what are his chances? I mean, let, let's give him some aspirin. Let's, let's, let's treat him. Let's wait a little while and maybe he'll improve. Death is a hopeless word. And God didn't say we were sick. If he had, then there might be the possibility that we would get better. God says we were dead. And not only does a dead person not get any better, a dead person actually gets worse. And that's why we have mortuaries, because dead bodies deteriorate, they decay, they fall apart, they rot, and they stink. When Jesus came to Bethany in John chapter 11, Martha came to him and said, it's too late. He stinks. That's a sister for you. She was being honest. You see, that's the way we are spiritually. We're hopeless. Not only are we not getting better, we're getting worse. We're getting more corrupt. That's the nature of sin. And what is it that brought on this condition? Look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Our death was brought on by sin. And it's interesting here, Paul uses two words to describe sin. The first word is trespasses. That's a word that literally means a false step. The idea is that there's a clear path that you're walking on and you choose to veer off of it. You take a step in another direction. And what this word describes is the idea of our acts of disobedience that are deliberate and intentional. We know the right way to go, but we choose to go the wrong way. But then he uses another word, and that's the word sins. It means literally to miss the mark. It was used of a bowman who took his bow and arrow and shot at a target and he missed. And he would say, I sinned. I missed the target. 
And this, is, this describes our acts of, of, of disobedience when we intended to do what was right, but we didn't. Most people, when they're caught doing something wrong, say things like, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't plan to do that. I don't know why I did that. I wanted to do what was right, but I did what was wrong. And you see, when you put these two words together, they cover both the positive and the negative. They cover the active and the passive. They cover the sins of commission and omission. And they remind us that before God, we are both rebels and failures. We are both rebels who have chosen to go our own way, and we are failures because even when we try to do the will of God, we can't. And as a result of our sin, Paul says, we're dead. In Isaiah 59, 2, we read the same idea. It says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin has separated us. We are dead. Most people get real upset about physical death. But there's something we ought to get more upset about, and that is the fact that we are already dead, spiritually The tragedy of the human condition is that people who were created by God and for God are existing apart from God. And that's spiritual death. And that's the first condition he reminds us of. You were dead. Secondly, he says you were dominated. Notice verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, in which you formerly walked. That's an interesting word that he chooses to use there because he says in verse 1 you were dead. He says in verse 2 you were walking. Some of you are sleepwalkers. You used to be death walkers. You were spiritually dead and you were walking in trespasses and sins. See, you were not walking anywhere you wanted to walk. You were walking in trespasses and sins. And even when you tried to hit the mark, you couldn't. Why not? Because you were dominated by certain things. And he mentions three of those things in verses 2 and 3. Notice, he says, You are walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and then verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Put those three together, and what's he saying? The world, the flesh, and the devil dominated you. First of all, he talks about the world. Now, what's the world? Well, that word is used in Scripture... Sometimes to talk about the physical world, the hills and the trees and the rivers. It's used that way in John 1.10 when it says Jesus was in the world. It's also used a second way, and that is it's used to describe the people in the world. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, the people in the world. But it's used a third way, and that's the way it's used here. It's used of the idea of a whole system of values and attitudes that are apart from God. Paul used it that way in Galatians 1.4 when he talked about this present evil world. It's used in Romans 12.2 that way when Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, this system of values, this system of attitudes that's apart from God. And John used it that way in 1 John 2.15 when he said, Do not love the world. Neither the things that are in the world, and then he names the things that are in the world, and he names three things, which is the list of their values. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Now what is that? Lust of the flesh is pleasures. Lust of the eyes is possessions that we see. And the pride of life is position. Now it's amazing to me that the world isn't all that creative. It hasn't really changed its values in 2,000 years. Because the message is still the same. If it brings you pleasure, do it. If it brings you possessions, do it. If it gives you and elevates you to a higher position, do it. And you see, men are following that course because we are dominated by the world. That's why you find yourself looking at pictures 20 years ago and saying, why did I dress that way? Because the world said so. 20 years ago, I fashioned myself as a hippie. And so I said, I'm not going to be like the world. So I went off and I grew my hair real long and I wore grungy bell-bottom blue jeans and tie-dyed t-shirts. And if I had had any sense, I would have looked around and seen that the community I was in all looked the same. You couldn't be a hippie with a crew cut. It was, you got to do it this way. The world presses us into their mold. And we see it all around us. That attitude that's out there, that mass of values that we tend to follow. Then he talks about a second thing that dominated us, and that is the devil. Notice verse 2. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now, the word prince is usually translated ruler. It's the word Jesus used in John 12, 31, when he called Satan the ruler of this world. Satan rules this world presently. He also rules the power of the air. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people have taken that to mean the airwaves. They've said radio and television are bad because he is the prince of the power of the air. Well, there's maybe something to some of that. In fact, I heard about a a well-known radio Bible teacher who was introduced one time, and the fellow thought he was giving him a compliment. He said, I'd like to introduce you to you, the prince of the power of the air. And he had to somehow get out of that compliment what's he mean when he talks about the prince of the power of the air well, when he talks about the air I think he's talking about what is real but can't be seen it's that element around us we know it's there but we can't see it and that's where Satan operates when he talks about power I think he's talking about what he talks about later in Ephesians 6:12, when he talks about the principalities and powers of this world, this evil world, those demons. And so he is the ruler of a whole host of demons that operate in this world. And that's what he's telling us here. But what's interesting to me is he doesn't just tell us that Satan is operating in the air. He's operating around. He goes on to say something else in verse 2 at the end. He says he is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Where is Satan working? He is working within. And who is he working within? He is working within the sons of disobedience. You say, well, that must be a description of the worst of the worst. No, that's a description of everyone apart from Christ. And that is a description of you before you were saved. You were a son of disobedience. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 44, to a group of people, you are of your father, the devil. A lot of times people 
bicker back and forth about whether Satan indwells somebody or influences somebody or, or uh, possesses somebody. And I don't really worry about that terminology too much. Because if a person is an unbeliever, this verse tells me that Satan has the right to work within that person. He is the father of unbelievers. He works within them to produce disobedience so that like father, like son. Wow. Third thing that dominated us was the flesh. Verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now there are two words I want to help you understand here. The first is the word lust. That word means strong desire. In and of itself, it's not a bad word. In fact, it's the word Jesus used in Luke twenty-two fifteen 15 when he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. With much lust, I have lusted to eat this Passover. So it's a neutral term. It just means strong desire. But you see, our desires were not good because we lived in the lust of our flesh. Our desires were selfish. And we took even those good desires and we twisted them into something that was wrong. There are certain desires that we have naturally that are good. You have the desire to eat. Eating is good. If you don't eat, you'll die. And that's why your stomach growls every once in a while to remind you that you need to. But we can take eating and make it sin by becoming gluttony. Sleeping is good. Some of you are catching up on it right now. <laughs> Hello. But if sleeping becomes my goal, my high priority, then I become lazy. Sex is good. God gave us a sex drive. God likes it. Did you ever think about that? God likes it. In the right context. In marriage. But we distort it. We make it the most important thing of all. And we're driven by it to do things that are wrong. And it becomes sin in our lives. We lived in the lust of our flesh. The second word I want you to see is the word desires says we were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And that word is translated every other place but this place in the New Testament. It is translated by the word will. We are not only living in the lusts of the flesh, our fleshly desires were our master. We obeyed them. We did not obey the will of God. We obeyed the will of our flesh. And that's why Paul makes a very graphic statement in Philippians 3.19. Speaking about unbelievers, he says, whose God is their belly. Is that something? They worship their belly. Whatever comes out, whatever this God tells me to do, whatever my desire is, I obeyed it because my God was my belly. I lived in the lusts of my flesh. And so apart from Christ, we were dominated by the world from without, by the flesh from within, and then Satan was working through both the world and our flesh to produce disobedience. We were dominated. Third thing we can say is that we were doomed. Notice verse 3 at the end. And we're by nature 
children of wrath. We were children of wrath. We were destined for wrath. And that's why Jesus said in John 3, 18, he who does not believe has been, what? Judged already. We were children of wrath. And that's why he says at the end of that chapter in verse 36, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Before you were a believer, you walked around with a big bullseye on your back. You were a target for the judgment of God. And Paul adds an interesting statement here. He says, you were so by nature. What's that mean? That means we were born this way. We were born as damaged goods. We were in Adam when Adam sinned and we inherited his nature. And so we were born as children of wrath. And that's why we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's why you don't have to teach your children how to lie. You have to sit them down and say, look, I want you to grab the toys from that other kid. That comes naturally because we've inherited that from Adam. We were born doomed. We were born as children of wrath. And lest you think you're the exception, look at the end of verse 3. He says, even as the rest. We were all in the same boat. Now that is a bleak picture. I don't think it gets any darker than that. You were dead, dominated, and doomed. Think about it. You were dead in a casket. On the outside of the casket was your name, son of disobedience, child of wrath. There were three locks on that casket. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And that casket was being lowered into the fiery wrath of God. Wow. That's why the first two words in verse 4 are so refreshing. He says, but God. Now, if you've never circled those words, you need to. You were dead, but God. You walked according to the course of this world, but God. You were a son of disobedience, but God. You lived in the lust of your flesh, but God. You were a child of wrath, but God. Now, if you have a testimony that doesn't have those two words in it, you've got a problem. If you can't say in the words of verse 1, I was, but God, then you're not going to experience the things we're going to talk about beginning in verse 4. They're not yours. What an exciting thing to have somebody give that kind of testimony. I was, but God. Now, what caused God to move in our direction? Two things he tells us in verse 4. God's rich mercy and God's great love. See that? There was nothing in us that prompted God to act. It was something in Him. It was His mercy. Now, mercy and grace are very similar terms. They're hard to really distinguish sometimes. Uh, Maybe the simplest way to draw a distinction between them is this way. Mercy is the withholding of a deserved penalty. Grace is the supply of an undeserved blessing. 
Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve, wrath. Grace is when God does give us what we don't deserve, blessings. And the key to both is that we don't deserve them. A mother came to Napoleon one time and asked for the pardon of her son. And the emperor said it was the man's second offense and justice demanded his death. I'm not asking for justice, she said. I'm pleading for mercy. And Napoleon said, but madam, he doesn't deserve mercy. To which the mother responded, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. We deserved God's wrath. Instead, we got his mercy. But that's not all. He says at the end of verse 4, because of his great love which, with which he loved us. God didn't just have mercy on us because he pitied us. He loved us. And I love the way he says this. It's because of his great love with which he loved us. It moved in our direction. What a wonderful thought. You want to see the measure of that mercy and love? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. That's a statement of amazement. Paul is saying he showed us mercy, he showed us love, even when we were dead. See, we didn't meet God halfway. We didn't clean up our act and then God found us presentable. When we begin to understand verses 1 to 3, I think we begin to be amazed too by God's mercy and God's love. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you see a roach crawling across your carpet? Anybody here go over to a roach and pick it up and say, Aw, it's so cute. No. I mean, roaches are disgusting. They're irritating. They're dirty. They're disease-infested. The only thing that makes sense when you see a roach is to walk over and go, like that. What does this passage tell us we were? We were children of wrath. Which means the only thing that made sense for God to do to us was to go. But God. He should have. We deserved it. We were children of wrath. We couldn't have argued with it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, God moved in our direction. Wow. What did he do for us? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Four times in those two verses we read that we are linked with Christ. When you became a believer, Christ didn't just come into you. You came into Christ. And because of that, he tells us three things happened. First of all, he says, we were made alive together with him. Now, sometimes when people become believers, not a whole lot seems to be going on. Sometimes that's a real quiet situation. Sometimes people feel a little 
little tinge of peace and that kind of thing, but sometimes it's just a very quiet thing. But he tells us here that at that moment, a very significant thing happens. We go out of death into life. We go from a spiritual corpse to a living spiritual being. But God doesn't stop there. Not only does he make us alive, but he goes on to say he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. God didn't make us alive and leave us in the cemetery. He made us alive and he raised us and he seated us. What does that tell us? I think it tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us about the quality of the life that we have. Death is separation from God. Life is knowing God. And where are we? We are as close as Jesus Christ is. We are at the right hand of the Father. That's the life that we enjoy. And not only that, it tells us about our victory. Because if we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ, what do you think we're sitting on? A throne. And what does it mean that he's seated in the heavenlies? Look back at chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, He raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. What does that tell us? When we are in Christ, seated in the heavenlies, those things that dominated us in the past are now under our feet in Christ. We have victory. But it also tells me a third thing. It tells me that we have confidence. Because all three of these statements are past tense. He made you alive. He raised you. He seated you. It's already happened. That's encouraging to me. This is not something that some great Christian works for years to accomplish. This is something we get at the moment we trust Jesus Christ. It's ours. And that's why he says we're up in heaven doing what? We're sitting. What does sitting mean? The work of salvation is already accomplished. We don't have any work to do. We just rest in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, I would be satisfied with that. But Paul's not finished. And I want to share one other verse with you this morning. It's verse 7. He says, In order that in the ages to come... He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Meditate on this verse. God has just begun to give. Because this verse says, He has surpassing riches of grace. Now, surpassing is the word we ran into back in chapter 1 and verse 19. It is that which overthrows. It is that which goes beyond. And so what he's saying is that God has riches of grace that go beyond. He has riches of grace that cannot be measured. They are limitless. And he tells us that there are going to be ages to come. Now some people argue that there's no time in heaven. I think there is time. Because this verse tells me there are going to be ages in the future. 
And in those ages, God is going to show to us the surpassing riches of His grace. Now, how's He going to do it? Is He going to put it on an overhead projector? No. Look at the verse. He's going to show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us. We're going to move from this age into another age. And in that age, God is going to say, you know, I haven't shown you all of my grace yet. I want to show you a little more of it. And He's going to show that to us in kindness toward us. And then however long that age is, it can be multi-millions of years, God's going to say, have you got that now? And we're going to say, I think so. And He'll say, all right, we're going to move on to another age. And in this age, I'm going to show you a little more of my grace. How? In kindness toward you. And that those ages will never end because God's grace will never end. It is limitless. And we will spend eternity coming to know and understand and receive the grace of God. And what will be our response? We will spend eternity worshiping Him. And that's why throughout the book of Revelations, what are you to read? People on their knees in heaven, bowing down and saying, Worthy is the Lamb. What an exciting concept. We're going to stop there today. But I want to ask you this. Where do you see yourself in this passage? Are you still in the first three verses? Or can you say, that's what I was. But God has brought me to life and raised me up and seated me with His Son in heaven. If you can't say that this morning, the Lord is still providing that opportunity. He's already done the work. And as we will see next week in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. All you have to do to be made alive in Christ is place simple, humble, childlike faith in Jesus Christ.